Great. Now we've made a rookie mistake by starting with the really exciting stuff from Cam, but hopefully you guys can rally as we dig into this passage. Okay, my name uh, is Nick Carney. I'm one of the elders here at Church of the City, and I am always delighted uh, when I get to unpack God's Word and talk with you all. And we've got a great passage, starts with sort of some, just sort of light animal theft, and then continues into great things after that. Okay? So we've been working, if you've been around, we've been working through the book of Ephesians for the past month or so, uh, which has been super great. We're pausing this Sunday, and for next Sunday, um, because we're headed into what in the tradition, uh, Christian tradition is called the Holy Week. Sorry, one second. I'm going to start my timer so that it buzzes stealthily when we're in trouble, okay? <laughs> headed into Holy Week. Uh, seven days that run from today, Palm Sunday through to Easter Sunday. And this week it commemorates, it's not like a one-to-one -one day structure, but it commemorates the days leading up to Jesus' death. We've got today, Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday and the Last Supper, Good Friday and the Crucifixion, the Saturday Vigil, Baptists don't go quite in for that, but we've got that, the Saturday Vigil, remembering Jesus in the tomb, which is also the last day of Lent, if you go in for that, and then the feast day that follows, which is Easter Sunday and the Resurrection. But at the front end is Palm Sunday, which is today, when we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the Passover. And we get this little vignette from Jesus' life um, and it's recorded in all four of the Gospels, which is always a sort of twig uh, for us here. Um, it's a pivotal moment in Jesus' life, sort of a point of no return. Because up to this point, am I doing something? No, that's okay. All right, I trust you. Um, <laughs> Jesus has been engaging in ministry for about three years, and by now he is comparatively known in Jewish circles for better and for worse. And Palm Sunday sees him coming into Jerusalem, uh, very obviously owning his title as the promised Messiah, the one who Yahweh, God, promised to send his people. And that role of Jesus as the rescuer is, and everything that he does at Easter, is kind of, it's key to what we're going to talk about this morning, but there's also a balance that I want us to try to hold. Um, we're into Holy Week. Palm Sunday puts us on the road to Calvary and then to Easter, but we're not there yet. And even though most of us, we're, if we're familiar, we know, we know what the ending is, and it's incredible, but for this Sunday, I'm going to try to avoid, I'll call them spoilers, not to preserve the surprise in any way, but because I think there's some really crucial preparatory work that can happen in our hearts in the lead-up to Good Friday and Easter that loses some of its, uh, use a, a theological term, oomph, uh, if we're already mentally at the conclusion, if we're like reading, we're like, yeah, yeah, this is all the buildup, but we already know how it ends. And so we're going to pause for a second here, as we always do, just sort of check ourselves in before God. Um, I encourage you in this moment to ask the Holy Spirit to help you sit in the beforehand of Holy Week and maybe ask God to say something new to you while we wait. Lord, it is wild how the, it's the pinnacle of, of our faith this week. Um, and yet, it's so easy for it to just go by because weeks can go by so fast. And there's so many things that can happen. And so I just, I pray for your grace, God, that we would be able to find, I barely even want to say time because I don't know what everybody's schedules are, but I pray that you would give us space in our heads and our hearts 
to think on what's happening in this passage and in the passages that follow as we reflect over this week. That, and that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would talk to us about this and that that would, would fill us in some new and different way. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. At this point, in the public eye, and certainly in his circle of disciples, he's been identified as sort of a Messiah-to-be, right? He's not like, he hasn't done it all, but people are like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of hype surrounding him. Uh, and there's been prophecies about the Messiah for, uh, at this point for like 500 plus years, tons and tons of them throughout the Old Testament. Um, and as a result, at this point, there's a ton of different expectations about what the Messiah would actually do which shouldn't surprise us because you've got a whole nation of Israel given this promise that said the world is broken and God's going to send a rescuer to fix that. But you've got people of different ages, different genders, different vocations, different levels of education, different personal experience, economic classes, all bringing their own vision of what's wrong with the world and how God should fix it to his promised Messiah. So there's a lot of expectation there. And I don't think that's terribly different from where we sit today. It's not a hard pitch to talk to anyone in the world and say, there's some problems with the world, yeah? And they're like, yeah, for sure. That's not, the, the, the issue is not to say things are imperfect. The issue is, A, to say, what is the imperfection and what's the solution? How do we actually deal with that? And so this is the setting, very similarly, that Jesus comes into on the back of a donkey um, and then he has the particular pleasure and burden of being the one people are actually expecting to identify and fix the problem. But he's got all these competing expectations. And they start to crescendo on Palm Sunday, in a sense. And I think by looking at these expectations and the way that Jesus responds to them, we can examine our own expectations of Jesus, but also, I hope, we can find some excitement and renewed appreciation for what Jesus actually does do. So to start, we're going to talk about the donkey. Got to talk about the donkey. Okay? Matthew 21, 1 to 7. Okay? So we've got this. Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, sends two of his disciples uh, to find a donkey, is confident that they will be able to get a donkey, and they do. Uh, And then uh, we're told that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, which is this is a, a cut from Zechariah, which was written... 500 plus years ago, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples did it, they brought the donkey back, and Jesus enters in. Now, like all of Jesus' actions, this is super intentional. He's not just sort of like, well, I think it would be cool if I did this uh, for, the, for the press or whatever. Um, this choice to use the donkey speaks to the Messiah messianic expectations that people had to him. And I think of two groups specifically. Uh, the first group that we're going to talk about are the Zealots. The Zealots are this Jewish sect that were very prominent during the time of Jesus and before and after. Uh, and effectively, their thing was they hated the Roman Empire. Okay? They aggressively protested against anything that they viewed as a compromise of Jewish religious belief. They went after Jews hard who cooperated with the empire. Uh, and they led several like full military uprisings against the Romans. Uh, they're recorded in history. They also knew their scriptures really well, our Old Testament. And that's what they actually rooted all their behavior in. They weren't just like very intense, sort of vaguely. They tied it to the scriptures. 
And because they knew the scriptures well, they knew the Messiah was coming because there's all these prophecies. But because of their view of the world, their expectation for the Messiah was that he would lead them in a military campaign to throw Rome out of the country. But Jesus, our Messiah-to-be, spends his ministry time teaching and healing people in the country and decidedly not raising up an army. And so by the time we get to Palm Sunday, most of the zealots have written him off. But it's important to acknowledge, they haven't written off the idea of a Messiah. They believe the Messiah is coming because that's in Scripture. They've, but they are so confident that they know what the Messiah is going to look like that they're sure that it can't be Jesus. But then Jesus shows up and he's riding on a donkey. And in this, he says two things. The prophecy that sh- shows up in that, uh, I think it's verse 3, uh, Matthew 21, verse 3, um, is so crucial here. Because by showing up on a donkey, he says, first and foremost, he says, actually, I am the Messiah. I am owning that title. Because he knows that they'll know. And then the second thing that he says, though, is your expectations for the Messiah are wrong. The zealots are expecting the Messiah to be a conqueror. Conquerors, maybe you don't know this, they ride into cities on white stallions or chariots. Those are the options. Okay? It's the only way to do it. They don't use donkeys in any situation. There's no way to do that and it not look embarrassing, so they don't do it. But, so Jesus does this, and, but the zealots know the scriptures and this prophecy is in the scriptures. And so the prophecy has always said your king is coming to you humble and riding on a donkey. But again, they're so convinced that they understood the problem that needed solving that they let their vision of the Messiah be warped warped into something out of line with what God had promised from the beginning. For the zealots, Rome is the problem and freedom is the solution. But Jesus shows up with this thousand-year-old relationship with Israel under his belt, a relationship that we can see in the Old Testament. And Jesus has seen Israel in and out of captivity over their entire existence. And every time they're rescued out of captivity, they disobey and fall back into their own ways almost immediately. And so Jesus knows that Rome isn't the ultimate problem. And he knows that political freedom isn't enough. It's not that it's not an issue, but it's not enough. And so he really, he looks at the zealots and says, you actually aren't going far enough in your pursuit of freedom. Because there's a deeper captivity at play here, and that's what I'm actually here to fix. The other major group that Jesus kind of thumbs his nose at with the donkey is the Jewish religious elite. Um, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, etc. They were just as passionate as the zealots about the scriptures, if not more so, uh, but their interpretation doesn't turn them towards violent resistance, um, but towards an intense attempt at personal holiness. They were so convinced that adherence to the Old Testament law was the way forward that they actually made additions to their own. They sort of like riffed on it and were like, yeah, yeah, let's get like, let's really Sabbath. And they knew the Messiah was coming. But their expectations were for a figure who was basically just an intensification of their own view of holiness, which as we see from Jesus' interactions with them in the Gospels, was a holiness that had them refusing to do clearly good things for others in the name of keeping themselves in line with their understanding of the law. And then Jesus comes as the potential Messiah, And they hear about him and see him associating with tax collectors and prostitutes and actually zealots. 
and also breaking their add-on laws for the sake of healing people or just letting his disciples pick some food to eat. And so they write him off too. But then Jesus shows up on the donkey and the Pharisees know the prophecy that the people start singing and they clock what's happening. There's no way they're not like, okay, great. So that's what he's declaring in this moment. They hear the people singing, and we actually get this wildly hardcore exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees in the book of Luke, where it says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're calling you the Messiah, paraphrase, but that's that's what he's saying. And Jesus turns to them and says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out, which is a wild response, huge Messiah energy in that moment. But the Pharisees don't see it. Because they've made a decision as far as what the Messiah would look like, and Jesus is not that. And so they just can't. They can't get it. They want a Messiah to basically just affirm their view of the law to, and then to go convince all the unholy, irreligious people that they just need to follow the law like the Pharisees have been saying for their whole time. But Jesus knows that, the, again, he's got this whole history with Israel. He knows that an awareness of the law and a staunch commitment to following the rules isn't the fix. Because Israel's had the law for ages. And so the fix isn't just to convince people that they need to follow the rules. He knows that what the fix is, is like a heart overhaul. And the Pharisees don't even have that on their radar. And so just like the, the zealots, the religious leaders don't go far enough in their pursuit of holiness. They think they can do it at a surface level. But Jesus knows that something deeper is broken and the solution isn't external law enforced. It's God doing something on the inside. Which, as a spoiler that we won't go deeply into, requires something very intense. Today, there are a thousand thousand zealots and a thousand thousand Pharisees of one persuasion or another. And I think it's safe to say there are zealots and Pharisees on both sides of that irritatingly reductive sort of political divide that we can talk about or won't talk about in this moment. (laughs) Given the right issue, I think many of us are probably one or in all likelihood both. There are a million problems in the world and they're worth our passion and attention James reminds us, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Good, strong social justice and holiness. But the temptation to let the particular passions that we have distort our view of the fundamental work that Jesus did and the Holy Spirit does is really intense. We're surrounded by so many, we can sort of call them cultural redemptive narratives. Basically, answers like, this is what's wrong with the world and this is how we fix it. And they're really powerful. And again, not necessarily bad. But if we let them become our dominant perspective, then we'll end up looking at Jesus and either trying to contort him to become the savior for a very specific thing, or he'll just disappoint us because he isn't as radical as we are in certain areas. Or he's more radical, but in a way that doesn't align with the way that we think. Also, when we let that warping take place, it usually comes with a blindness to our own sin and brokenness. The zealots loved the scriptures so much, Rome was the problem, had to get them removed. They were willing to murder Jews that were cooperating with them in order to achieve that goal. 
And so they're cutting their own legs from under them. And the Pharisees, so committed to holiness, and Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. And so it's only by submitting our passion and zeal in these areas to the leading of the Holy Spirit that we can keep them in their proper place. Not unimportant, but not obscuring and confusing the central work that Jesus did and that the Holy Spirit still does. I want to go in and just be like, and this is what he does. But it's an arc towards Easter, and Spence is going to land the plane. It's going to be so good, but we're holding off, okay? Last group that we're going to look at. We've got zealots, we've got Pharisees. The last one here is the one that shows up most prominently in the passage, is the crowd. 8 to 11. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. They cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, followed him, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred up saying, Who is this? Because he's from the country, I guess. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So much height. It's a beautiful image, right? Jesus enters in on a donkey, and people unironically are celebrating him, which is a strange, like, we, culturally, that's a little different. We wouldn't do that. They're the ones uh, that pull the quote from the prophecy in Zechariah that challenges the zealots and the religious leaders. The crowd is pulling down branches to wave in celebration. They've caught the vision of what Jesus is doing. Or at least they've caught some kind of vision. There's a lot of hype, for sure. And the crowd is thrilled to have Jesus coming in, and they're singing the prophecy. They're declaring this carpenter from the boonies, the promised Messiah, 500 years in the waiting. But we've got to ask, what are they expecting from the Messiah in this moment? What do they expect him to rescue them from? What problems do they assume he'll fix? We know from Luke's account that the crowd isn't just sort of this random assortment of people. It includes, potentially in large part, the disciples of Jesus. Not just the 12, but likely the hundreds of men and women that followed him around, watched him heal, were healed, uh, and heard him teach. And even still, there's probably bound to be a a wild assortment of interpretations and expectations tied to what exactly Jesus was going to do. For some, the attraction was probably super ground level. He healed sick people, mentally and physically. That's a pull. Some might be just there because there was miracles happening and they want to see what Jesus will do next. Some probably paid very close attention to his teaching, heard about the kingdom of God being close or in fact already here and want to be part of the movement, whatever that's going to mean. Some people probably heard him preach the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, the mourners, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And some of them maybe didn't even really catch the for righteousness part. But they're from low-class rural Palestine, and this man carries some vague feeling of hope in a tough world, and he, calls, and he talks about God in a way that doesn't just feel like a bummer. And I really hope we can see the beauty in the crowd here, like that we can see ourselves there, and our neighbors, and our family members, and the people in our missional community, but also the people that we disagree with, and the people that have hurt us, and the people that we have hurt. And they're all there and they're excited. But we should know that outside of this little moment that we see of their lives, just like us and everyone we know, they probably spent time trying to find comfort from the brokenness of this world in a million other less than perfect ways, if not sinful ways. 
just trying to endure existence with like joy or just like okayness? Because we just see them for a minute. But they get close to Jesus and something happens. We see them with them. But there's this beautiful desperation in this crowd as they're singing and dancing. They know the world is broken, just like everybody does. And they see in Jesus some kind of hope. And they likely know in some intangible way, that it's a different kind of hope from the hope they feel in sort of the muddier things that they've gone after. Which I hope uh, you can hear that. And I hope you can think of the ways in which the hope that Jesus offers are different. And so the crowd sings, and they wave huge leaves like flags, and they shout, and they probably dance. Just because Jesus is there. And they don't even know what he's going to do, really. When we talk about being Jesus to the world, I think this image should be a really powerful guide. Obviously, it's a bit reductive because there's a million like hard, brave, and exhausting conversations and all this stuff that happens in between. But I hope that we can look at the way this the crowd reacts to Jesus' presence and entering in and get not just like sort of petty inspiration, but some gut-level glory for what our day-to-day interactions with other people can look like. What is our impact in a group of people? And we don't want them to dance for us. That's weird. But do they feel something different, a hope that is different than the hope that's offered to them by the rest of the world? But at the same time, we've got a million reasons for being in that crowd, and a million fuzzy expectations of what the Messiah is going to do, none of them actually understood what was coming. We've got all these prophecies, but the specifics, they don't know. Not even the 12 disciples really understood, and that John briefly talks about this at the end of this passage where he says, and the disciples didn't get this till later. That's probably the message transcription of that, but that's effectively what he says. Jesus did all this stuff And then eventually, they're like, oh my gosh, that's what he was saying. But in the moment, they're just like, whoo, we are on the hype train, this is great. But by the time Good Friday rolls around, a lot of the people in that crowd were just, just, probably all of them were just disappointed. Because a dead Messiah doesn't heal anybody, and he doesn't teach, and he doesn't make you feel hopeful. Just like the Zealots, just like the Pharisees, the crowd has expectations that are disjointed because Jesus, he did heal people physically and mentally and the Holy Spirit still does that today, but that's not what he died for. And he taught powerful sermons and literally paradigm shift in Jewish and ultimately all of human ethical thinking, but that's not what he died for. So you're like, what did he die for? But we can't, that's spoilers for Easter, Okay. But Jesus knew. He knows the difference. He knows. (laughs) He knows. And so in the same way that we need to be wary of high-level cultural ideas of how we're going to fix the world, we need to be wary of our individual expectations about how he's going to fix us. Not that we don't pray and ask for great things in faith, but that we realize what the fundamental gift of salvation is about and that we don't get it tangled up in what we think we need to get through this life just feeling okay or better. There are days when I pray and I ask Jesus to make me who he wants me to be. 
and I spend time with him, and it's really good. But there are other days when all I want him to do is just fix my bloody procrastination so that I can function better at work and look more put together. That he would just make me functional in society, or at least how I understand functional would look like. But he didn't die so I could achieve my flawed definition of self-actualization. Or so that I could live a life uninterrupted by difficulty. That's not the pitch. Not that he doesn't care. He sits with me in those moments of grief. He walks with me through the difficulty. But the, the, that's not the, the pitch isn't a fix for those things right off the hop. No, Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, being hailed as the Messiah by all of these people. And he looks at the crowd and he looks at us and he loves us so much. But he knows that our problem is so much deeper than we understand. Specifically the crowd back then because they didn't even have, Paul hadn't even started going off about it all. We at least have that. And Jesus knew that our problem can't be fixed by a local teacher who heals people for three out of his 33 years on earth and then gets killed. And so every step that the donkey takes is a step towards the Last Supper, which the disciples didn't get, and then towards Good Friday, where the disciples ran away, and then towards what came after. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we all feel our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world. And the degree to which we feel it shifts and changes depending on what's happening. And you've planted that awareness in our hearts. It's not a sin to see what's wrong as we understand it. And it's a good thing to go after those things with passion, to see good change in ourselves and in the world around us. But you are God in heaven. And your understanding of us and of the whole world that you created and especially of the humanity that you made and that we broke is so deep and you're the only one that could fix the actual problem that sits at the roots of our heart and so i pray as we move into this season of easter as we look towards good friday as we spend any moments of time and reflection that you would impress upon us the true earth-shattering utterly above and beyond anything we understand redemption that you brought bigger than anything we we could guess at we wouldn't have asked yeah and so yeah i pray that holy spirit you would bring that home for us if not this week sometime and maybe over and over again for us in jesus name we pray. Amen.